6. Genesis chapter 6. I'm really looking forward to these next few weeks as we get in here to the story of Genesis and the flood. There's not too many stories that take up this much space or time in the Bible. The story of the flood here with Noah takes up all of chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and even a chunk of chapter 9. Yes, there are certain elements, the Gospels, obviously, or the life of Jesus that cover a whole book. But there's not too many times in the Bible where you have one story that covers four different chapters. And I think it shows how important the flood is. And as we get into the actual physical flood here in the next few weeks, we'll talk a little bit more of the scientific background on that and how that has been shown and looked at. But we have to start out with this idea of who Noah is and the background till we got to this point. Noah is quite the guy. Noah is quite the guy. To think that Noah is the one that the Lord saved out of this. I was reading up on this, trying to figure out a little bit of background. And as we mentioned, I believe, in chapter 5, that chapter 5 covers about 1,600 years. 1,600 years. To to think of what the population could have been. Because if I remember correctly from our sheets last week, Adam went to his ninth generation. And I read one commentator that kind of said this. They did a quick little thing of these people. If a generation is about 40 years... They figured there could have been billions of people on the earth by the time that the flood happened. I don't know about you. Anytime I've ever thought of the flood, I've always thought about this small group of people and Noah's handpicked out of. 1,600 years of people living 900 plus years and having many sons and daughters, the earth is going to be pretty populated. Noah was the one that's chosen out of this. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their daughters. So a total of eight people were going to be on the ark. And it's interesting, and we're getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit, but Noah is given the command to build the ark. If you look at the dates, it looks like Noah hasn't even had any children yet. It's kind of a neat little thing. But we're going to get to the ark itself in the next couple weeks. We have to get to the background of Noah. Noah is a big wig in the Old Testament, a real big wig. He's part of the big three. And the reason he's called part of the big three, if you look at your sheets there, are these passages in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 14, God is talking about judgment. And he says, he comes right out and says, you're going to look at the verses, that if these, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. What God is basically saying in Ezekiel 14 is if Noah, Daniel, and Job would ask me in prayer to spare this, to do this, he goes, I would even ignore them. So God himself, when he picks his big three... Noah makes that cut. That's a pretty big deal. And it's not just mentioned in the Old Testament. Noah is mentioned throughout the New Testament many different times and many different capacities. Look at your sheet there. He's a man of faith. In Hebrews 11, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Most people believe, and once again we're getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit, That by the time Noah built the ark, this idea of rain probably did not happen. There was still a canopy that watered the earth. So this amazing guy going out and building this huge boat over the next hundred years, that's faith. That's a lot of faith. So Noah is pictured as a man of faith. What was he doing while building? Well, according to 2 Peter 2.5, he was a preacher of righteousness. Most people believe that was Noah was building the ark. He wasn't just building this thing. He was also preaching and warning about what was to come. He's a man of faith. He's a preacher. And according to Matthew 24, it's a sign of the end times. When Jesus talks about as the days of Noah were. It's a warning to us. So he says, just as in the days of Noah... Look at verse 24, there, excuse me, verse 37 of Matthew 24. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. This idea of life continuing with no idea of judgment coming. Noah is mentioned numerous times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in the Old Testament. He's part of the lineage here in Luke chapter 3. He's part of the big three in Ezekiel. This is quite the guy. Quite the guy. Enough that Genesis takes up about four chapters of his life. Quite the man when it comes to that. So as you are going through this, and as we get to verse 8 tonight, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There was something about him that the Lord saw and said, this is a man that I want to use to rebuild the earth. Think about this from this perspective. Noah is almost the equivalent of Adam of starting over. Adam is the first guy. He's the first guy. So everything starts with Adam. Noah gets to start the whole earth over again. That's an amazing thing. And if these estimates are right, that there are billions of people on the earth, and Noah then all of a sudden says, him, his wife, and his three kids and their wives get to start everything over. That's quite the choosing of the Lord. Quite the choosing of the Lord. So, that's the background of Noah. Keep that in the back of your mind. Why was this man chosen to do this? He was a man of faith. He was a man that was a preacher. And he also, his life shows the end times here of what they were dealing with and what was going on. So, with that being said, we're introduced to Noah. Let's get into some details here. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 6. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, of whom all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Wow, those are some strange verses. Now, if you look at your sheets on the back there, I started out with saying something called three levels of debate. We've mentioned this numerous times out here, and I'll just repeat it. There's three levels when it comes to things in the Bible. The first level is a level of things that we cannot and will not compromise on in any way whatsoever. Virgin birth, we have to agree on that. God's Word, we have to agree on that. Jesus being God, dying on the cross for our sins, we have to agree on those things. If we cannot agree on these fundamental things, we cannot have fellowship as supposed brothers and Christians. Sisters in Christ. If I say I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, that he was God and he died on the cross for my sins, and you come back and say, Well, I believe virgin birth, I don't believe Son of God, and I'll take die on the cross for our sins, we can't have fellowship. These are foundational truths that we cannot disagree on. We can't. And these are what makes us a Christian. So that's one thing that's, that is just not open to debate. And that is what makes us brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's the first group. The second group are things that we can agree to disagree on. These are things that we can look at the Bible and say, well, listen, I believe the Bible teaches this. The th- I, well, I believe the Bible teaches this. It's not salvation. They're not foundational issues. They're issues that we can say, I see the passage you're talking about. I take it this way. I disagree with you. And I hope you see mine. Chew on it. That's level number two. Level number three are things that just who cares, but they're fun to talk about. So, there's a lot of level threes. Now, here's the problem in Christianity. Some people take a level two and make it a level one. No, let it go. It's not worth arguing about. Some people take a level three and they make it really important. Who cares? It's not that big a deal. These passages in verses one through five, this is a level three. It doesn't matter. 
We're going to talk about it because it's Wednesday night and I get to teach. But if this was Sunday morning, we would probably make a few points and kind of move on. This is a fun topic. It's a fun discussion. But I've run into many Christians that take these first five verses and they spend way too much time on it. And they become a huge deal to them. Let's just talk about it and see what we're dealing with here. Level three. What you have here going on in verse two is the sons of God are intermixing with the daughters of men. And they're having these offspring. Verse 3, God says, I don't really like this. The result of this offspring is verse 4. There are these giants, or depending on your translation, Nephilim. Now, we have to talk about what's going on here. Now, these sons of God, what does that phrase mean? There's usually two discussions on this. Discussion one is that this is an intermixing of the line of the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And what happened is that there used to be this separation between the godly line of Seth and then the bad line of Cain, they kind of intermixed. And since they intermixed, this idea of searching for God went out the window and God said, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. The other idea is this idea of this is actually talking about angels here. Now, let's take the first part first. The intermixing of the line of Seth and Cain. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't see that. And this is why. Some people say that the sons of God, daughters are men, Cain line, Seth line. Okay, I have seen believers and non-believers have children together. And they didn't have giants. It's not like you see somebody nine foot tall walking around saying, well, one of your parents weren't saved. I can tell. That, that's not the result of believers and non-believers. It's not. So when somebody comes and says, well, this is Cain's line and Seth's line, everybody in the NBA had one saved parent and one parent that wasn't. I, I just don't see that. If you see it, that's fine. This is a level three. Who cares? It's fun to talk about. We can debate it. We can go back and forth. But it's not salvation. I think when you study this out, that there's a little bit of background here. This phrase, sons of God, verse 2, this is used in the book of Job to refer to angels. Now, now, not through the entire Old Testament is that phrase always used, angels, but predominantly, the majority of the time, it's referring to angels. And you can check that out in the book of Job. This idea of giants or Nephilim, is the result is that word literally means fallen ones. Kind of gives the hint that they came from something fallen. Fallen angels. Now, if that's all we had, we'd probably just let it go and not talk about it too much more. But then there's these verses in the New Testament. Look at the first one on your sheet, Jude 6. The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, that makes you start thinking a little bit. There's some angels that left their proper domain. They went places they weren't supposed to go. That's kind of interesting. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them to the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Yes, there are some angels that are free, fallen angels. Most people believe they are the demons that are free. But there's this group of angels that are reserved. They did something where God says, I'm going to have to lock you up. Satan gets to be free, other demons get to be free, but you guys did something that now you have to be locked up. Now, if we put it all together, I think it makes an interesting little picture here. Sons of God in Hebrew seems to be pointing towards angels. The result are these fallen ones that kind of make a reference to fallen angels. Jude 6 talks about angels leaving their proper domain. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says there's a group of angels that did something and they had to be contained. I think it's kind of interesting. Level three, who cares? But it's fun to talk about. So, there is something going on here in the first five verses 
where something has happened where God says, basically, the line in the sand has been crossed, enough is enough. Is it the intermixing of a godly line and a heathen line? Possibly. But I tell you, that's been happening for thousands of years. It looks to be that there's something more going on where God says, I'm going to put my foot down. Now, I'll open it up for questions and comments because it's kind of a fascinating topic here. And that kind of introduces us to what's going on. So anybody got any quick questions, comments about this? Kathy. Yeah, it looked like that they would take the form of man. And that's not an unbiblical concept because if you look in the Old Testament, most of the time when angels appear, they took the form of a man. That's what they did. Well, no, they would have been angelic beings in the form of a man. So, would they be human? No, they just took the form of a human. Procreate? Well, it's kind of an interesting question because what happens is, if you're reading throughout the rest of the Bible, it says that angels do not marry or given in marriage. Well, that's what angels, they among themselves do not do that. Nothing is ever hinted or said that angels cannot do that, you know, if they take the form of a man down here on earth. So, is it possible? I guess the answer to that is the Bible doesn't say it's not possible. So it's kind of an interesting topic there. Interesting thing about a fallen angel. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible ever come out and say for sure that the third of the angels that fell with Satan are actually demons. Obviously, that's what I believe. That's what I teach. That's what it is. But if somebody came to me and said, show me where one of the, three, or the third fallen angels that fell with Satan, show me where they are demons... I can't show you an exact reference that says they are the same thing, but all the context clues of Satan having them organized, them being under the lordship of Satan, it sure seems like they are. So if you're asking me, yeah, I think the fallen angels are demons. Yeah, Ryan. Uh, that verse that says there were giants in the earth in those days, if you look at the, I, the whole fossil record, you have Yeah. And there's, I've seen a, a creationist video one place where the guy said, what if it wasn't just the sons of the, the Nephilim that were gigantic men, but what if regular men grew to be gigantic 12 feet tall as well? Like yeah. And he just kind of threw that out there as a maybe. And it's a fascinating thing, and it, it's one of those things that I wish we could go back and have more detail on, because obviously for these you know, 1,600 years that the earth was under this mist, this water vapor, it, it was a totally different ballgame, and things changed. As we mentioned last week when we started through Genesis 5, people were living 900 years. After the flood, you start seeing them go from 950, if I remember correctly, you know, um, Shem was 600. You get down to Abraham, I think it was 175. And you just see as generations go on, their ages just decrease rapidly. What was it like before the flood where things were different? And Brian brings up an absolutely wonderful point. Because when you study out the fossil record, you do see these giant things. Well, maybe the earth was completely different before the flood where things like that would have happened. So it's a fascinating thing to study. It really is. I do not need to see a dragonfly with a six-foot wingspan. I, I would, I'll see the giant sloths. Those look kind of cool. But the six-foot wingspan dragonflies I could pass on. But it is. And in all seriousness, when you do go study out the fossil record, and I encourage you to do this, it's amazing. So often when we study out the fossil record, 
we feel like we can't put it through the lens of the Bible, and I disagree with that. You can put these things through the lens of the Bible, and it does match up. And as we get to the flood here in a little bit, as we get to the flood action in the next few weeks, it actually helps explain some of the reason why there is a fossil record because of the flood. So there's a lot of neat things here. And so often we see some of this stuff in science and says, oh, this is why we're weird as Christians. It doesn't line up. A lot of this stuff can line up pretty good. It's pretty neat. It's going to be a fun study here for the next few weeks as we get into the flood. Surely. People live here. Yeah, not in Deschler, exactly. Right. No, they did not live in Deschler. No, I know they did not live in Deschler. Yeah, and that's another thing we're going to get to in a few weeks is there's some people that try to take these passages and talk about localized flood. And I think there's a reason why God here talks about how the water went above the highest mountains to, sh- to show this is a worldwide flood. To answer your question, look at Abraham himself. Abraham did not live in the promised land. He migrated from there. He was a you know Ur of the Chaldeans. So were they all living right there in this little spot of Israel? No. They had spread out. Now... Some people believe that topography of earth was completely different. If you go look at Israel now in the Middle East, well, there's no way desert land could support billions of people. There's no way. We don't know what the earth was like once again before the flood. We don't know the exact topography of it and what the geography of it was. The flood created a lot of different things. But if the Middle East, there's a reason why at one time the Middle East was called the Fertile Crescent that there could have been a whole lot more going on there where people could have lived and it wouldn't be like it is today. Once again, if you go look at Lebanon or Israel or Syria or parts of Egypt and northern Africa, well, there's no way people could be living there. Well, before the flood, it's quite possible it was totally different. Plus, you've got to remember before the flood, they did not were not eating meat. So you didn't have to have this pasture with livestock. People were uh, vegetarians. It was a totally different ballgame, totally different. But they were not living in Deshler, no. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Okay, so basically what happens, it kind of sets the scene here for what's going on. If you look at the sheets, what's the result of this? Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 5 just sums it up. And I stole this point from G. Campbell Morgan. If you look at the sheets there under result, he says, Outward condition, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. They were outwardly wicked. But look at the inward condition. Every intent of the thought of his heart was on evil continually. This is the world. They were outwardly completely wicked. They were inwardly completely wicked. And look at the stressing of the word here at the end of verse 5. And this is out of the New King James. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that's New King James. Every intent, only evil continually. This is why when you now read in Matthew 24, where it talks about the days of Noah, Jesus is trying to tell you this is what it was like before judgment came. Now, I think we can all agree, just go watch the evening news for a half hour, and there's a lot of evil intent going on in the world right now. There's a lot of similarities here between the days of Noah and what we're going through right now. This was a despicable evil time. Look at verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. 
It took 1,600 years for the earth to go completely downhill. That's all it took. 1,600 years. And you see this is what God was dealing with. So what God decided to do, the consequences of this, verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man with whom I created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the way the Lord was going to deal with this is basically saying, I'm going to start over. But I'm going to start over with Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. If you look at our last point there, this said this when we went through our study in, in Revelation. and judgment, there's always grace. God could have wiped out the whole world. He decided to start over again with somebody. I mean, it's the same thing that happens today. God could wipe out the whole world now. He instead says, you know what? I will wipe out the world. I'll do the book of Revelation. I'll judge. But I'll have this rapture happen to take out the believers first. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, is this because Noah was such a wonderful, wonderful guy? Well, we're going to read in a couple of chapters that Noah had some problems himself. There is no one righteous, no, not one. It's God's grace that brought this out. So what we really have here through the first eight verses is just some quick background. This world is a horrible place at this time. Horrible place. It is outwardly evil. It is inwardly evil. God says it is so bad, it's not even worth fixing up. It, it kind of reminds me when Dawn and I were getting ready to uh, either buy or build a house years ago. We looked at both. And we looked at houses that you could get real cheap, and they were fixer-uppers. And we said, I can't do that. <laughs> I am physically not capable of doing a fixer-upper. I know people that love fixer-uppers. I said, you know what? We're going to start fresh. I sometimes look here at the world, and God's like, you know what? I could make this a fixer-upper. No, I'm just going to start fresh. Wipes out the world. Noah comes back. Eight people start over. Now, I have to reiterate this point. The flood gets a bad rap. It gets a really bad rap. Because God killed potentially billions of people. I want to make sure this is clear. The way I read and understand verse 3 is that God is giving man 120 years. When we get to the dimensions of the boat here in the next couple of weeks, this is not something that Noah could throw together overnight. This is not a little snap-together kit. This is a big deal. It would probably take Noah 120 years to build this boat. That's a fascinating thing. We also know for a fact, and we just read this a few verses ago, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So if somebody came up to Noah, Noah, what are you doing? This is my paraphrased version. I'm building a boat. Why? There's going to be a flood. What's a flood? I don't know, but God says it's coming and everybody's going to die, so get on the boat. I don't know if it went down that way or not. That's the way I see it. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was doing what God told him to do in faith. Noah was a witness to the world. This happens a lot. I run into people that get upset at certain passages in the Old Testament where the Bible says that God said, kill every man, woman, and child. What we don't look at in the verses before and after it is there's one passage I'm thinking of right now where the man went before the town and came and said, we're going to come attack you. We're going to come kill anybody that stays. You're a curse to this land. But if you want to get out, Leave now. Now, whose fault is that then? When there's forewarning. For 120 years, there's somebody preaching. For 120 years, there's forewarning. Yes, God's heart grieves over the death of the wicked. We know that. But at the same time, too, for 120 years, God gave an opportunity for them to accept or reject. Same thing is happening today. But now it's been going on not for 120 years, but for thousands of years. 
When the rapture happens and the book of Revelation kicks into full gear and we read about the horribleness of the seal judgments, the bold judgments, and the trumpet judgments, those are awful. But God is also giving many opportunities through you and I, the two witnesses, angels flying overhead, signs and miracles. People can choose to accept that or reject that. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. They chose to reject what he said. Judgment came upon the earth. So, that introduces us to Noah, who he is. That introduces us to where the world had become, why it needed to be judged. And so what we can pick up next week on is this idea of the actual ark itself and how the animals got on, how it was built, how big it was. It's fascinating to get into the actual dimensions of the ark. Then we get into chapter 7 with the animals getting on the ark, the actual flood happening. There's lots of stuff going on here in these next few chapters, and I hope you can make it out for that. Anybody have any final questions, comments here about Noah or the background of how we got to this point? Ryan. I think one of the reasons God used the flood rather than just say, all the magical died, that, is that the flood was leaving behind physical Okay, you mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark a lot. You do know that that's not a real movie, right? I just want to make sure we do know that, right? It's really not in the Smithsonian. But no, you bring up a very valid point. As Christians, and and I, I stress that, as Christians... We believe that there is physical evidence of the flood. We do believe that. Now, if you go up to people of the world and scientists of the world, they will give you a different opinion. But there is, and that's a wonderful point that Ryan brought up, is that part of the reason why this flood has happened is that there is a physical evidence left. There is a history left to this. And the flood is mentioned so many times throughout the Bible. Noah is mentioned so many times. The flood is mentioned so many times. This is something where God says, I want you to remember this. And I'm doing this to remind you of many things. The flood reminds us of many things. My first thought on the flood is I always think of the rainbow. Grace. God promises I will never do this again. I also see judgment. I mean, isn't that what the Bible is? The Bible is either grace or judgment. There's only two options here. The flood shows us that God will judge wickedness, but also in the midst of judgment, He will honor us with grace and salvation. It's a beautiful picture. Really, it's a beautiful picture. Anybody else have anything they want to say here? Surely. Maybe, maybe there were dinosaurs. You, you really got to think for Dashler here tonight, Shirley. And you even live in Wood County. Right. Creation was judged. And I think it's an important point to mention, and I believe off the top of my head, I believe it's in the book of Romans, uh, Romans 8, where it says all creation is under the curse. You know, my boys right now are covered in poison ivy. Because two weeks ago, it was a nice day, and I said, let's go back to the creek. So we went back to the creek. I'm the only one that didn't get poison ivy. They got poison ivy. They got poison ivy in places where I don't even know how they could get poison ivy. The world is under the curse. Rose bushes are under the curse. You know, going outside, bee stings are under the curse. All creation is under the curse. And God is eventually going to reverse that curse. And what a blessing that will be. Yeah, Amy. And that's a really good point, and I'm going to answer that question with two different answers. One is either yes or one's no. (laughs) And the reason I say yes or no is because if you look in Genesis 6, it says, verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. 
Some people believe, and this is where we start getting to that level three stuff of it doesn't matter. Some people, some people believe that maybe um, Goliath was a result of that. Because they look at that passage where it says afterward. And they mention Goliath. So to answer your question, we really don't know. You can ask some people that's going to say, well, maybe it continued some. And maybe this whole Jude 6, 2 Peter thing was an ongoing thing where God eventually took them all and said, no more, this is done. Or some people believe it just ended right there. But there is a case to make for like a Goliath. There really is because that verse 4 is really interesting. Also afterwards. You have to kind of wonder what God is meaning when he says afterwards. So something to chew on. Yeah. Yes. Well, they're mentioned in one reference. I believe it's in Numbers 14 where they went to go scout out the promised land. And the scouts came back other than Caleb and said, we're scared to death because we saw the Nephilim. Yes. So did they really see giants or were they scared? And I don't know. They look like, yes. You know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm about 6'4". And so when I see somebody taller than me, they look like a giant. There's people out here in this church that look like giants to me. So were there really giants in the promised land? Could have been. They could have been Nephilim. They really could have been. Or it could have been just from their perspective they were big and scary. We don't know for sure. But I, like I said, that phrase in verse 4 is really interesting where it says afterwards. So that's interesting. Steph. Well, Satan would be a... Um, I almost said the word supernatural. Satan would be a spirit, you know, in the sense of an angel. So he's not actually living physically on the earth in that way, in that capacity. Satan is a, you know, supernatural being that's created in the heavenly realm. So Satan's abode is not on earth. He still has access to heaven. So the earth was the one that was under the curse. The earth was the one that was under the flood, not the heavens. Anybody else have anything here? Yeah, Mark. That's a good point. That's a good question. Um, you know, most everything I've ever read and studied said they came down in the form of man. Because that's what angels do. I mean, if you look throughout the Bible, when angels visited Abraham, when angels visited Mary, when angels visited um, Samson's parents, they always come in the form of a man. So I guess I would probably lean towards more they came in the form of a man rather than possessing a man per se. Well, and that's kind of the, the question mark on some of this stuff. And, and it kind of goes back to that whole point three, that level three thing, is it's a fascinating thing to talk about. But it, I've come to the conclusion after reading and studying the Bible for years, if God wants me to know about it, he usually tells me more details. If there's issues where he says, hey, just trust him and go on. Like the whole Jonah and the great fish thing. God could have wrote 66 chapters on that. What was it really like in the big fish? God says, just trust me that it happened and moved on. So I think you bring up a good question, but I believe I lean more towards, obviously, they took the form of a man rather than possessing a man. Because when you look at it, they take the form of man in other areas. Why wouldn't they do it in this way, too? So, anybody else got anything? Alrighty, next week, we'll get into the ark itself, God's plan, the animals coming, and we'll go from there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now. Thank you for the time to be here. And Lord, thankful that there's grace in the midst of judgment. Thank you, Lord, for your love, grace, and mercy on us. Thank you so much. And, Lord, help us to remember as well, too, um, judgment that is coming, and help us to be a preacher of righteousness in all ways, too. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.